In Advent, we wait expectantly for the coming of the Christ. But what specifically do we want and need in God's Son, the Messiah? We could probably generate a pretty long list if we thought about this hard enough. But in Isaiah 9, the prophet famously gives us four titles for the coming Messiah, and each one ties in with something that Israel then and we also now need from our great God. As we begin this Advent series, we focus on how God's coming one is a wonderful counselor. Stay tuned. Welcome to Groundwork, where we dig into Scripture to lay the foundation for our lives. I'm Daryl Delaney. And I'm Scott Jose. And Daryl, this episode is the first one in a four-part Advent series. Advent covers four weeks, and so we're going to have a four-part Advent series based on Isaiah 9, verse 6, and we'll read that in just a moment. To a lot of us, these titles are pretty familiar, I think. Yes, they are. And we've heard them many times in our worship services and in Sunday school with the children. You know, this is a season where we're all waiting for Jesus. We're preparing our hearts. We're preparing our minds for the best gift of all, being Jesus Christ, to bring the hope and the light in the world. And Advent is that season where we walk towards the wonderful Savior's birth. And what we want to do in the first part of this episode is just remind ourselves of the original historical setting in which Isaiah wrote and proclaimed this. And that'll serve really as the background for all four of these Advent episodes. And then the second thing we want to do just in this first segment as we get going here is clear up what may be a common misperception about that first title that we're going to focus on in this Groundwork episode. But first, uh, let's, let's remember, Daryl, where Isaiah was in history. So if we think about how the Israelites have got themselves into this situation, way back in Deuteronomy, they were given these stipulations. If they obey God, they will be blessed. Mm -hmm. If they disobey God, they will be cursed in chapter 28. And what will happen, one of the stipulations, the fine print, if you will, it says they will be taken into foreign countries Mm -hmm. and conquered by these foreign people who worship different gods than them. And that is because they forsake the God of Israel. And they're in this situation. That fall happens around. 587 BC when they're being taken out by Babylon, when they're being exiled. And that's why they're in this situation. So the overall book of Isaiah, it's a big one, 66 chapters. It covers a lot of time. Uh, The historical setting of the book seems to be just before that 587 BC exile of the people. Isaiah is predicting that it's going to come and is pronouncing judgment. And that's the focus of chapters 1 through 39, the judgment of Israel. Then there's a second section, chapters 40 through 55, and that seems to be during the exile. And yet these words are loaded up with hope for restoration. You know, Isaiah 40 begins famously, comfort, comfort my people. And then that second section concludes in Isaiah 55, about the words about how all the trees of the field will clap their hands and seeing God's restored people. And then the third and final section, 56 to 66, are filled with words of joy and rejoicing following the end of the exile. And of course, that's the section that contains words like, like, arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord shines upon you. So that's the three sections of Isaiah. Now, Scott, do you believe that Isaiah wrote that whole book by himself in the 66 chapters? It does cover quite a bit of ground, doesn't it? Yeah, it covers well over, probably over a century of time. So some scholars think that there were two or three people who wrote as Isaiah. They were still inspired prophets of God, no question about it. But um, it's possible, of course, the same Isaiah lived for just a really long time. I mean, that's not impossible. Really, uh, whether it's a a single Isaiah for the whole span of the book or a couple or three different authors, uh, that's not too important to settle on to get the, the message of the book. So again, those three sections, judgment, 
and then hope, and then rejoicing. Now, Isaiah 9, then, is in the judgment section, but that might be surprising because it doesn't sound very judgmental as chapter 9 begins. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace." And of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So again, that doesn't sound very judgmental. That's a lot of hope. But actually, if we read one more verse, it would start a new section, which a lot of Bibles title, God's anger against Israel. So these verses that we just read, Daryl, they're almost like a sneak preview of the joy that's going to come to fuller flower later in the book. But even in the judgment section of Isaiah, the people need something to build some hope on. And I think that's what we get here. But again, our key focus for this Advent series, verse 6, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You know what I was thinking about when you were reading that verse, Scott, is that this is in the judgment section, which means that in the context of Israel being in a situation or getting ready to go into exile, Mm -hmm. they have gone so far off the rails that they're going to need divine intervention Mm -hmm. from a God who can do these things. So, you know, it's not very different from our own personal lives that if we're left to our own devices, we're going to run off the rails and we need God to intervene in our life to actually change our situation. And that's what foreshadowing is happening with Mm -hmm. Isaiah here. Exactly. And before we close out just this first part, and uh, then in the next part of this program, we're going to get very specifically uh, in terms of what wonderful counselor means. But what, we need to clear something up because probably a lot of us listening to Groundwork are familiar with uh, George Friedrich Hendel's Oratorio Messiah. And because Hendel used the, the King James version of the Bible, which was the best version they had in his day, he based one of his famous choruses on what's probably not a very good translation of the original Hebrew, because Hendel treats as two separate names, Wonderful and then Counselor. You know, the chorus sings, his name is Wonderful, stop, Counselor, the Mighty God, then it goes on. Uh, so that makes it sound like Wonderful and Counselor are two separate names, but All scholars believe now that really all four of the titles here contain two words, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Peace Prince, and so the first name is Wonderful Counselor. So not two separate names, but just one name that fits within the context here. And uh, I think, you know, as we have found better ancient manuscripts that show what the original Hebrew was, that kind of clears that up. So it's still great to listen to the Oratorio Messiah, but when you get to that part, you got to kind of remind yourself, oh yeah, it's Wonderful Counselor, not Wonderful, one name, Counselor, second name. And we're going to talk more about that in the next episode, the names and the powerful effects of having them as a compound name. But in this segment, as we continue on, we want to talk about what it means to have Messiah come in this situation, understanding that he is the wonderful counselor, both compound names together. So let's talk about that in a second. Stay tuned. We're glad you've joined our Groundwork Conversation. If you're enjoying today's discussion and want to download or listen again, you can find the audio podcast and transcript for this episode on our website, groundworkonline.com. 
Want to dig deeper? You can also find episode guides and blogs available to supplement your study. Curious about another episode or series we've mentioned? Search our episode library to find hundreds of conversations about God's Word and what it means for God's people today. Add your voice to our Groundwork conversation by visiting groundworkonline.com. And thank you. Support from listeners like you makes Groundwork possible. I'm Scott Jose with Daryl Delaney, and you're listening to Groundwork and the first part of a four-part Advent series on Isaiah 9, verse 6, where we get four amazing titles for God's coming Messiah. And in this program, Daryl, this first program, we're focusing on the first one, of course, Wonderful Counselor. And now we want to wonder, what does that mean? If you think about it, if you did a word study on those names, I love the fact that it's called not just a counselor, but a wonderful counselor, a counselor that only can be God. And if you think of wonder and you think of marvelous works, you can think back of the things that might hearken as a Hall of Fame in Israel's history of when Moses delivered them or when the Red Sea was parted or when Solomon got wisdom from God to rule. Um, you would see that they have a Hall of Fame of things that God did to advise his people in a very divine way to help them to live, even though they have forsaken it at the time. A lot of scholars do believe, and you just mentioned the word yourself, Daryl, in connection to Solomon, this particular title ties in with one of the major literary types, one of the major literary strands of Scripture, and that is the wisdom tradition. So we've got quite a few different kinds of writings in the Bible. Uh, There's narrative, of course. There's prophecy. There's apocalyptic literature. There are letters and epistles in the New Testament. But there's also wisdom. Wisdom literature is a major tradition. You know, Daryl, I think when we think of wisdom, most of us, and we've done a series on this on Groundwork before, but when we think of wisdom in the Bible, we think of the book of Proverbs. So in the wisdom literature category, you got Psalms, you got Proverbs, you got Ecclesiastes, and you got Song of Songs. And so it is a different genre that we need to look at differently. We can't look at it the same way we look at uh, Messianic prophecies or we look at historical narrative. There are things in there for us to actually put into practice and live by practically that will bless our lives. And so it's great to have an example from Proverbs, and we can pick it up in chapter one right here. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, for gaining wisdom and instruction, for understanding words of insight, for receiving instruction in prudent behavior, doing what is right and just and fair, for giving prudence to those who are simple, knowledge and discretion to the young. Let the wise listen and add to their learning, and let the discerning get guidance, for understanding proverbs and parables and the sayings and the riddles of the wise. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. So there's a lot there when I just read, Daryl. Maybe we can start pulling it apart and say, okay, how does the Bible define wisdom? It is very important for us to know that these are the characteristics of a person who is wise, and there are practices that they do. There are things that they do, and there are things that they do not do. Mm -hmm. And so there's a guideline for them to live by. And if they follow the things that Solomon is saying to do in the book of Proverbs, starting with the fear of the Lord, then they will actually have a better life in front of them in this world. They will be insightful, we're told. They will discern what's right and fair and just to do. They're open to receiving guidance, and then they follow through on the guidance they're given. And, Daryl, I think what that all adds up to is a person who is humble before God, who has, as you just said, due fear and reverence for the Almighty God of the universe. And in that way, the wise set themselves apart from the foolish. 
because, you know, Daryl, one of the marks of wisdom is knowing how much you don't know. You know, <laughs> a wise person knows there's always more to learn. Fools think they know everything. And therefore, they can't be taught. There's the old saying that we've used on Groundwork before. Uh, fools are often in error, but they're never in doubt. The problem with a fool is you can never teach them anything. They won't listen. But the wise are open to being instructed. And that's where our wonderful counselor comes in. That's what Jesus does for us. He instructs us. He guides us. He teaches us. He shows us. He makes us insightful. My grandmother used to say, you can't tell a fool anything because he knows everything. Mm -hmm. If your cup is full, then you can't allow it to be filled up by God. And the idea is to understand that Jesus himself personifies wisdom and he is the wisdom of God. And that is how we're called to live because the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, showed us how we should live. And that is usually what you just said there, Daryl. That's usually what we think of with God because of John 1, the word of God, the word made flesh. Turns out Jesus is also the wisdom made flesh. And we can pick that up a little bit, uh, Daryl, from something the apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1. It says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those who God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. So there it is. Paul names it directly. Jesus is the wisdom of God. He's the word made flesh. He's also the wisdom made flesh. And of course, we've done a series on Corinthians too. I think uh, we've touched on a whole lot of the Bible and groundwork's history. Um, Not much we haven't talked about, it seems like. But in the context of 1 Corinthians, Paul's making clear, Daryl, that this is a surprising wisdom. It's so surprising, the world is convinced it's foolishness. I mean, how can anybody get saved by a guy who got himself crucified? How can anybody get saved by a meek and mild-mannered person like Jesus of Nazareth? But again, this is where we need humility, to let God and let Christ, who is our wonderful counselor, instruct us. The world has a different way of doing things, obviously. And if you're foolish and you go along with the ways of the foolish, you would think that you need to muster up some strength or Mm -hmm. you need to build confidence in order to be wise or you need to do this and do that. Strong arm people. But the gospel also teaches us that we are not to conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And we let Christ teach us that by modeling how he has lived. He shows us the way we are to go, and we as humble students receive his wisdom. We receive his instruction. It's kind of curious. Jesus, of course, as an incarnate being, uh, is a male. Wisdom in the Bible is always a a woman, though. It's always lady wisdom as opposed to lady folly in the book of Proverbs. And even in the Greek language, uh, the Greek word for wisdom is a feminine name, even Sophia. Uh, That means wisdom. But in the Bible, we're called to listen to lady wisdom, to listen to lady Sophia uh, and take that instruction seriously. And as you just said, Daryl, not to be seduced by the words of folly. Reminds me of Proverbs 3, verse uh, 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your paths straight. That's what we're called to do, Daryl. That's supposed to be what our, our posture is going to be.
So it's very important for us to know if we submit to God and we trust in his way of doing things, because obviously he knows more than we do, definitely will bring clarity to our life and our understanding. And this is actually a character trait of the wonderful counselor. This is one of my wife's favorite verses. This is her mm-hmm. life verse. She lives by this verse. She wants to trust God in everything she does and therefore get clarity on how to move forward. The more we lean into the world's way of doing things, the more we trot down the road that leads to folly and ultimately to death and to destruction. So indeed, we lean not on our own understanding, but on what our wonderful counselor gives to us. But in just a moment, as we wrap up this program, we'll think about a few more practical applications of all this, so stay tuned. What does it look like to honor and serve God in your marriage and family? Visit familyfire.com to discover how you can better live out your faith in the context of your relationships. At FamilyFire.com, you'll find articles and devotions curated to encourage you to stoke the Holy Spirit's flame in your home. You'll also find an online community that can help you explore what it means to follow the Holy Spirit's lead in your family as a spouse, parent, or even an in-law. Join the community and be encouraged at FamilyFire.com. You're listening to Groundwork, where we dig into Scripture to lay the foundation for our lives. I'm Daryl Delaney. And I'm Scott Jose. And Daryl, we said earlier, the first seven verses of Isaiah 9 are almost like an oasis of hope in what is otherwise a rather difficult section of Isaiah about the judgment of God against Israel's sins for having not lived up to their end of the covenant bargain as stipulated in Deuteronomy, as you mentioned earlier in the program. So the one who we call Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, he's going to provide everything we need for hope and restoration in a broken world. We, we need everything that this Messiah will bring and everything that these four titles for the Christ mean and that we're exploring in this Advent series. I think it's important to note, Scott, too, is that it's not just for the Israelites way back then that needed this situation because they were in a position that was actually of their own doing, their own brokenness. And now they're in this exile situation. Now, they needed the hope that the four titles of the Messiah could bring. But in this situation... Our lives today, I mean, the world is still broken and we still have a lot of problems, whether personal or corporate. And we still today need the four titles that this Messiah needs. We need the wonderful counselor. We need him today. And we need him in the church today, certainly, as well. So these words were for ancient Israel as they teetered on the brink of exile. But the church needs them today, too, because... You know, often also in the church, all too often today, we kind of insist on our own ways. And usually when we do that in the church, bad things happen. You know, when the church gets seduced into thinking that the way to change the world is to use the power-hungry tactics of politics to leverage what we want, well, when we think that way, the counsel of Christ as God's wisdom as our wonderful counselor begins to fade away. And unfortunately, we flip what you said earlier, how the world thinks that Christ's wisdom is foolishness. Mm -hmm. But when we try to follow the world's ways, we try to make Christ's wisdom foolishness. And that is not the way we live. And the other thing that we don't talk about is that there are consequences that happen when you don't live according to the way God wants you to live. Natural consequences of things that make life more complicated, that make life more difficult when you try to live according to the world's ways. And that is not what we're called to, Scott. Only in Jesus do things end up making sense. And and we see this in another Pauline passage in Colossians 1. Now, unlike 
1 Corinthians 1, where Paul directly called Jesus the wisdom of God. He doesn't mention wisdom in Colossians 1, but it's in the background. Uh, Verse 15, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. What's beautiful is that this verse echoes what Proverbs did with wisdom Mm. because it says by wisdom were the foundations of the world made. And this verse says that all things are held together by Christ. So not only is Christ being connected to the wisdom personified, but we're also seeing that wisdom is how everything was created. So we have the word all things that keeps coming up is quite a theme in this verse, isn't it, Scott? Tapanta in Greek, tapanta, 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 all things, all things, all things must come up at least a half a dozen times. (laughs) So if you're not connected to Jesus, no things will ultimately make any sense to you. But if you know Jesus as the wisdom of God, as our wonderful counselor, then things sooner or later begin to uh, make some sense after all, which is probably why some people have in the last couple centuries since we've known of it, uh, Jesus has sometimes been compared to an archaeological discovery made many years ago, something called the Rosetta Stone. I was thinking when you said Rosetta Stone about how they have this company called Rosetta Stone now Mm. that helps you to learn different languages in a very fast way. And the original meaning of the Rosetta Stone is very interesting to talk about from the archaeological standpoint and why they probably named the company that way. Maybe you could shed some light on that. Yeah, they did. Well, you know, Egyptian scholars knew for centuries and centuries that, you know, on the insides of pyramids, on walls, on parchments, on pottery, the Egyptians wrote in that picture language called hieroglyphics. They're all pictures. Problem was, nobody knew what hieroglyphics meant. Nobody living could remember what hieroglyphics meant until around 1800. The French leader Napoleon found a part of an ancient tablet on which somebody had written out a series of hieroglyphic images, but then wrote down the same message in two languages that were known, including ancient Greek. So when you read the Greek and then look at the parallel message in the hieroglyphs, Voila, now we know what hieroglyphics means. Uh, The Greek translated hieroglyphics. The Rosetta Stone unlocked it for us. And that, we say, is what Jesus does. We face a bewildering and confusing reality. We don't always know what to make of things in this world of brokenness and sin. Sometimes we say, I can't make heads or tails of anything in life. You know, we, we say that. But then Christ comes to us. And and he unlocks those mysteries for us. And now we have a shot at figuring reality out through God's very wisdom. So I love it because you're actually tying it to the wonderful counselor title, Mm -hmm. Scott, because a counselor is a guide. Mm -hmm. It's someone who helps you along where you feel stuck, where you don't know what to do. You have a lot of questions. A counselor can help put you on the right path. And so being Jesus, you called him basically the Rosetta Stone to help us understand how we're supposed to live. If we model what he has taught us and we allow him to counsel us in our everyday lives, then definitely we'll have a better path. 
And again, as, as we've said, you know, the church needs this today. All of us do. We've seen so much in recent times, Daryl, so many sad, hostile divisions in churches. And sometimes we've seen, too, how partisan politics and outside viewpoints on the best way to accomplish things, that has crept and sometimes crashed into the church, too. Uh, we keep trying to get stuff done on the world's terms. Jesus, as our wonderful counselor, calls us back to himself and to the wisdom of God. He calls us, as we said earlier in this episode, he calls us to be humble, to lean not on our own understanding or our own understanding of the ways to get things done. Jesus unlocks the meaning of life, and he shows us again and again that even though the world thinks the gospel is foolish, we know it's wise. And that is personified basically in the word from Isaiah 9, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. This is the Jesus who is the son of God, the light of the world who brings us hope. And he is the one who is our wonderful counselor and he alone can guide us and he alone can instruct us. And we need to submit to his ways in order to know how to live our life and be the blessing that he has called us to be. Thanks be to God. Well, thanks for listening and digging deeply into Scripture with Groundwork. We're your hosts, Scott Jose and Daryl Delaney, and we hope you'll join us again next time as we consider the next title Isaiah gives the coming Messiah, Mighty God, and we'll see what that means for us. So connect with us at groundworkonline.com to share what Groundwork means to you or tell us what you'd like to hear discussed next on Groundwork. Groundwork is a listener-supported program produced by Reframe Ministries. Visit reframeministries.org for more information. Our recording engineer is Dot Morris, and our post-production supervisor is John Reeder. Our senior producer is Courtney Jacobs.